Father, we do thank you. Lord, we thank you that, that as we reflect on this, this Christmas season, we, we, we would remember that we were once not a people. We were not your people. We were outside of the people of God and, and that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were those who needed a savior and you sent your son, Lord, to be, to be born as king and yet a humble king in, this, in the manger, Lord, and to live the perfect life for us, that die vicariously for us on the cross and rose from the dead. And Lord, we look forward to knowing that he will return one day and that is our eager expectation. And so Father, we pray that you would teach us your ways as we study your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. And we said that there's lots of agreements. There's more agreements than disagreements amongst Christians, particularly that the focus of eschatology is the return of Christ. That's what all true Christians would, would agree on, uh, uh, the, the, that Christ is returning and that, that we have an expectation for that return that leads to holiness and perseverance in our lives. But there's also disagreements. And we spent a couple weeks looking at the three major positions regarding the millennium. Three, regarding the millennium, we, we looked at the, the amillennium and postmillennium um, uh, views, which basically boil down to, in one way or another, that this age we're in now is either is the millennium and the tribulation right now at the same time, which is the amillennial view. There's also the post-millennial view, which, which the, the standard view of that is that the tribulation already took place. We're in this kind of time in between the tribulation and the millennium, and the church is going to bring in this, this coming millennium, and then Christ is going to return. So I should put this up here. Uh, C-H-R-I-S, there we go, T. Christ is going to return and into the eternal state. So that's the all-millennial, post-millennial view. We looked last week at the view of our church, which is the pre-millennial view. And that's the idea is that um, uh, we're, we're in the church age, there's a coming tribulation, and then there's the coming, then, then Christ is going to return at the end of the tribulation, um, pre the millennium. And then a, a, a literal, I guess let's say literal, a, a future thousand-year reign of Christ on earth and then into the eternal state. So that's the pre-millennial view. Now, as I said last week, I didn't bring up the word rapture once. And the reason is, is because the, the idea of rapture is, <clears throat> is a pre, the, the differences on the rapture is a kind of within this pre-millennial idea. If you're not a premillennialist, then it's really easy when the rapture is because <clears throat> it's all centered right around this Christ return because there is no, in a way, future millennium. There's no future millennium in this way so that, that, that it's, it's centered right around Christ's return here. So there's not a lot of disagreement between amillennialists and postmillennialists if they believe in the rapture. Some think it would, would interpret it different ways. I haven't read enough on that in some of their views, but some would, would interpret that slightly different ways. Um, but the, the idea of the timing of the rapture is only a premillennial debate as far as is it pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? Because if we're in the tribulation right now, which is the amillennialists would say, or for the tribulations already happened and gone in 70 AD, which the postmillennialists would say, then amil, mid, or amid, am, uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It only makes sense with a pre-millennial understanding. Does that make sense? That's why I didn't mention it, because that, that, that there are two separate ideas. First of all, what is the understanding of the millennium? And then if you understand a 
pre-millennial return of Christ, then there's, there's discussion on where is the timing of the rapture. But <clears throat> within this pre-millennial debate, <clears throat> this is a difficult discussion. And, here, and the idea is, because of the question that I've asked before, but I'll ask it again, <clears throat> where is the word rapture explicitly mentioned in Scripture? It's not. Right? If you do a Google or a Bible Gateway search or a Bible software search or a Strong's Lexicon search or a Blue Letter Bible search or whatever search you want to do and you type in the word rapture into your Bible search, how many instances of, of are you going to get back? Zero. <clears throat> so the word is not in our English Bibles, but... Is it true that there are concepts in our English Bibles where the word may not be there? Yes, right? Other examples of that? Trinity, Trinity, biggest one, right? Trinity, the word Trinity is not in your Bible. The concept of the Trinity is all over the Bible. Um, uh, One I brought up a lot, church membership. You're not going to find the word membership, at least in that that, that context, in your Bible. And I say that church membership is, is, is that concept throughout the New Testament. We spent many weeks talking about that. So our English, where, where did that word come from then? The English word rapture comes from the Latin uh, rapiamur. I, I don't speak Latin, so that's one of the languages I don't do there. So, but R-A-P-I-E-M-U-R. And that was used in the Latin Vulgate translation of 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. So I, maybe I should correct my earlier statement. If you read the Latin Vulgate... If you speak Latin and your preferred Bible translation is Latin, then I guess you would find that in your Bible. But again, it wouldn't be exactly rapture. It would be the Latin term for that. Or if you, I guess if you brought up uh, Roman Catholic back when that you would, uh, by certain churches, would only do the Latin Vulgate, then, then that would be there as well. <clears throat> but 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 is where you find the term that was translated into Latin where we get the English word rapture. But instead of just starting with the verse, to understand the meaning of the verse, we need to look at the verse's what? Context. Context, context, context. And the best place to start is the immediate context. And so let's start back at verse 13 there. Let's see what's going, what's going on that Paul's addressing in this church. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have or who have no hope. So what's the context? Who are the sleeping people? The dead. dead. How do we know it's the dead? Okay, they're not waking. They're asleep and they're not waking up. How do we know? How do we know? What are the the clues here that it's the dead? Grief. Grief. We don't usually grieve over people that, that sleep. Actually, we're like, oh, you, you're lucky. You got some extra sleep there, right? Um, it's not, there's, so there's, there's a context of grieving. So when you look at the context, remember words have friends. Sleep with that context of grieve is used, especially in the New Testament, of ideas of death of believers, okay? So we're talking about the death of believers. So they're, they're grieving about these, these, um, these believers, these Christians who have died, Right? And, and so we, why are they grieving? We have to keep reading, right? Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the context tells us, so we know they're grieving. He doesn't exactly tell us why they're grieving, but his answer to encourage them in their grieving gives us the clues and the context of why they're grieving, right? Why are they grieving then? From Paul's answer, what are the context? What are the clues of why they're grieving? He dies and rose again. And what does, that, what does that mean for those Christians who have died? They will, rise. they will rise again. And so why would they be grieving then? What, what's their misunderstanding? That they won't see him again. Yeah, that, 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 they, that they somehow, because they've died before Christ's return, they're going to miss that second coming. They're going to miss that coming to be with the Lord. What, 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 what happens there? Right? Um, for, uh, for we declare, um, so, and so, uh, yes, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So, again, He's starting to talk about the believers still that are alive, but is the focus on the believers that are alive? No, the focus is still on the believers who are dead. So as a secondary truth, he is saying by implication, here's some truths about the believers who are alive, but the focus is on the, those believers who are dead. He says, yes, the believers who are alive, um, um, that they're, gonna, they're going to uh, be with the Lord as well, but not, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he explains how this works, verse 17. Then we who are alive, this is our, where we get the, the, the Latin, where it's translated into Latin, that word rapture. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. That's the word translated into Latin, rapiamur, or, or rapture. Uh, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So we're going to, this idea of being caught up, being raptured to meet with the Lord. That's the purpose, to meet and be with the Lord. Now, is the focus of this section to teach us about the rapture? Did Paul write this section with a purpose of, let me explain how the rapture is going to work? No. no. For com- verse 18, therefore encourage another with these words. The encouragement primarily is not about I'm going to be raptured. What you're doing there is you're taking it out of context. You're saying, I, I want to talk about the rapture. Oh, look, verse 18 says encourage. So it must be encouraging about the rapture. In a secondary way, sure, but that's not the primary context, right? What is the primary encouragement of the context? You will always be with the Lord. We're going to be with the Lord, and especially those who have, have died. This is encouragement about those who have died. Secondarily, there are truths and encouragements for us as well. Is the rapture there? Yes. He is teaching about the rapture, but his, the rapture is actually a supportive point, not a primary point. You guys see that? <laughs> so Paul believed in the rapture. He knew about the rapture. He just didn't think it was important enough to focus. Uh, he, there's so much more he could have told us, because, but the, the rapture was in support of this point about comfort for the believers who have died. Um, <clears throat> so, so Paul's focus is not an exhaustive teaching about the rapture. He's telling us the rapture is a fact. 
that the rapture is going to happen, but he does not tell us the details. There's a lot of details Paul leaves out because his purpose was not to explain this here. His purpose was the encouragement about, um, the encouragement of, especially of, of those who have died and also with us who are alive will join them as well in being with the Lord. <clears throat> so this is why it's a difficult subject that Paul acknowledged that this is a fact, acknowledged that this is going to happen, and yet Paul didn't feel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not feel it worthwhile enough to elaborate. At least it didn't fit his purposes to elaborate for us. Then the more difficult spot is, how many times do you see the rapture explicitly mentioned in Revelation? Well, if it's only in 1 Thessalonians 4, how many times is it explicitly mentioned in Revelation? Zero, right? So, so Paul, in 1 Thessalonians, purposely, he, he actually left out a lot of what John was going to say. Now, did Paul know that? I think that from hints of some of his writings that he had some understanding of this, this um, what was going to come. And on the other hand, did John, did John know about this, this teaching of the rapture? You have to go, John, John doesn't explicitly say it. I would say yes. Because first of all, you look at the, the, the apostolic circle of John and Peter and Paul, there's a lot of overlap there, right? They're in a lot of the same places and teaching the same people. John ends up a teaching in Ephesus and Paul was in, you know, founding the church of Ephesus. There's a lot of overlap and, and there's a lot of, of, of you know, teaching, from, uh, 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 teaching from the Lord, which is why I think you see a lot of overlap between the gospels as well. So I, would, I think that, that just from, from logic, I'd say Paul, I think that John did know about the rapture. And yet he chose, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it wasn't worthwhile enough to put it in, in, in the revelation. Yeah. Could John have done that if the Holy Spirit had inspired? He could have, right? But he didn't. So that's, that's the challenge of this subject, is that we are actually trying to put the pieces together beyond what Scripture has actually made clear. Deuteronomy 29, 29. That... There are things that, that, that have been revealed to us that belong to us. And we need to make sure that we know those, we stand on those, we defend those. And there's other things that God has not fully clearly revealed. And, 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 and God has gifted us with logic. God has gifted us with logic to try to put the pieces together. But we want to be careful that we are not treating our logic with the same um, authority as the word of God. Right? That, that's really important. I've said this before, this, this is, I try to be really careful in my counseling sessions when I do that of, here's what the Bible says, and here are my suggestions, and let's make clear that those are two different things, mm-hmm. right? Here's what the Bible is very clear about as far as eschatology, the rapture and, 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 and what Revelation says, and, and, and here's where I have put these together as a theologian, yeah. Have you uh, studied and what's your take on uh, John 16, and at the tail end of it from... Uh, 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 from 16 on, mm-hmm. it talks about a little while. Mm-hmm. And all the apostles had this, <coughs> what Jesus meant by a little while. Yeah. And the fact is that, you know, they got it even totally more confused because Jesus then rose from the dead after he was crucified. Yeah. And then when he comes back again on the second coming. Yep. I think they could have got that mis- I think there's a couple things. One is, I think pre, 
Pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost, you're looking at two different understandings. Jesus says that, that the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to remind you of all these things, yeah. right? So pre-Pentecost, I think you clearly see misunderstandings by the disciples. You see that at the beginning of Acts, right? Um, uh, Lord, is this now when you're going to come and restore the kingdom? Acts 1-7, right? And he's like, no, but, you know, but you're going to be um, my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. So there's still a misunderstanding pre-Pentecost. I think that post-Pentecost, you don't see that misunderstanding. And in fact, I think that, that you get that tradition. It really, this idea that the disciples didn't understand about Christ's return or that they thought it was sooner than it was, you really don't see that idea until about the 1700s. Um, with really the rise of liberal theology and that this understanding, trying to undercut the really what the disciples really understood. Un- Before that, you really see that there's a pre-Pentecost understanding of that, yeah, they didn't understand, but when the Holy Spirit's there, you see from, from Pentecost on through Acts and through the letters that there's a consistency. I think that Paul even presents that consistency of, I think that you see hints through Paul that, that, that he wishes he was here, but he fully expects at the same time that he may not be here when the Lord returns. Well, actually, the apostles really didn't understand a whole lot about anything until they were, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, involved with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yep. I think that's, and that's what you're looking at, pre-Pentecost, post-Pentecost. And that's what I'm also saying, that John, I would say, I can't prove it from Scripture, but I think that when you start working through it, again, this is not Scripture, this is me, right? But when you start looking it through that Jesus taught them a lot during that time post-resurrection, before he ascended. Then you're looking at the disciple. The Holy Spirit came and reminded them of all things. Did John have an under, some understanding, just as Paul, of some of, the, of what was going to happen? I, I think that I'd say yes. But in the aspect of, but he doesn't reveal, clearly reveal that. So, yeah. yeah. How do you figure in John 14, 3, mm-hmm. where he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, that in the sense of, is that directly for the apostles or is that in which what, what, what way? I mean, I think what you're looking there is, I mean, in the same way is um, in, in verse, and in, in just a little bit before that in 13, and this idea of this new commandment to love one another, that wasn't just for the apostles, right? That there's a collective aspect to given to the church. You're looking at what is the purpose of this, this upper room discourse. It is to the apostles, but I think that you're seeing aspects of that, they're extending far beyond that. And we would say that even though the disciples didn't understand, Christ clearly understood that there's a near and a far fulfillment there. the disciples here, mm-hmm. um, and John quotes him as saying yeah. what I just said. Yeah. So did they not believe him? Did they interpret something else? Mm-hmm. It well, seems yeah. clear just on that one sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, but that's why when you have to look at the sentence, you have to look what's the context, right? And what's the broader context of right around there? Then obviously the, the whole um, upper room discourse. And then clearly that, that you could say, if you were sitting in the disciples, I think clearly the disciples didn't understand at that point. I mean, I think that John makes that, you know, kind of, kind of makes that clear that they really didn't understand. And even up to the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1, they didn't understand. But my point is that from Acts Acts 2, at Pentecost on, there seems to be a consistency, um, at least on, on, on these things that the Holy Spirit has brought. So, but let's, let's, so I want to move on here. So what, we're looking at this tribulation. We're trying to, God has given us logic. We want to put the pieces together the best we can. 
as we try to understand this. Now, I'm going to spend just real briefly on this, the minority view. The minority view is the mid-tribulation rapture view. And the mid-tribulation rapture view, basically it divides the tribulation in half and halves of three and a half years. And the mid-tribulation view is saying that the church is going to be there for the first half, during which they would say is just the wrath of man. And then the church is raptured halfway through at the time, time, and half a time, at the three and a half years. And then once you start looking at the uh, Trump, uh, the bold judgments, you start seeing that it's, poured, it's being, the wrath of God being poured out in these bold judgments and the wrath of God, the church is then gone. So that's the argument there. Um, and uh, that the, 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 the first half's wrath of man, the second half's wrath of God, the church is there for half and not the other half. And it has a lot of overlaps with, with actually some of the arguments both on a pre-trib and a post-trib. Um, but the critical, the reason why they would have this is they look at Daniel's interpretation of that 70th week. They look at Daniel 7.25, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 12.7. They also would look at Revelation 12.14. And they would say, it seems like that, that, that the Bible divides the, the tribulation in half. That there's this distinct, distinctness between the two halves. So, well, what, what can make it distinct between the two halves? Well, the, one half the church would be there and one half the church would not be there. So, that is the, the main, I mean, if you boil down the arguments that they're taking some of the arguments from the pre-trib and the post-trib and they're, they're taking those, but then they're kind of making this halfway position of, well, especially based on that time, time, and half a time, that, that three and a half years, there seemed to be a, 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 an interruption of the, the tribulation there. Um, and and, and the, the, the reason that this is a minority position is because all their arguments can be either found in the other two positions, except for that one. And that one's pretty easy to, to, to say that there's just not a lot of reason for that. And he, the reason is, the Bible does say that there is, seems to be a division of the tribulation in two. There does seem to be a division of a time, time, and half a time. The Bible never says what that division means that the church is going to be, then the church is not. That's reading into, kind of trying to find this midway position, reading in this midway position into that time, time, and half a times. There's nowhere where that time, time, and half a times, either in Daniel or in Revelation, is specifically linked to the presence of the church. So, so you're looking at this, it's, it's a... It's pretty much a minority position just because um, their main biblical support is, is, just, is, is just not very clear. So that's why I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on that position. Um, How about in Matthew, uh, Matthew uh, uh, 24, mm-hmm. on uh, verse 22, and this is Jesus talking, mm-hmm. and I, when he talks, I... Well, I would say that, that, that everything is, is of the Holy Spirit, so I would take it all serious since the Holy Spirit's God as well. well. I don't know. I give more weight for what Jesus quotes. Well, is and the Holy Spirit less God than Jesus? You know, but anyway, it talks in... in well, first answer me, Ron. Is the Holy Spirit less of a God than Jesus? Is, there, is, there, is the Holy Spirit less part of the Godhead than Jesus? Is he less inspired? No. Then we should take it all as the inspired word yeah, of God. Well, then maybe I misspoke. All right, go ahead. Right. But on 22, it says, uh, and unless these days were shortened, mm-hmm. no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's uh, sake, th- these, those days will be shortened. Mm-hmm. And that kind of supports a halfway thing a little bit. Because uh, <clears throat> when you talk about the elect, you're really talking about the church. Because well, the, the body is 
church. Yeah, and that's why I would say that the, the mid-trib is closer to certain parts of a post-trib where they would say Israel is not distinct, that the elect there is not Israel, that Israel does not have a distinct place there. They would say that the elect is the church. That that's, tends to be a post-trib view, yeah. where the, the pre-trib would say the elect, when it talks about eschatologically, is God's fulfillment of Israel. That's Romans 9 through 11. So, so depending on how, what your view is, that, that's a difficult passage there. But I would say that they, they do look somewhat there. Um, but they're, when, in their argument, though, that cut short, there's nothing of that, that time, time, and half a times, which is, which is the main argument that they would give there. And so that, that, that main argument of that, that it's going to happen is that the, the uh, precise time, time, and half a times that there's a the, the, uh, select interval, is, there's, just, there's just not a link there. In fact, the, the, the more common argument from Matthew 14 is this, this pre, pre kind of tribulation, tribulation of, of certain natural disasters, and there's a longer, so they divide it more Matthew of a um, first part of Matthew 14, or, and then second, 14, yeah, 14, and, or 24. 24. 24, and the second half of 24. But again, you're, you're, you're reading, if you didn't have, if you didn't come with this mindset already, I, just, you, I don't think you'd see it in the text. If you're not already looking for it, if you're saying, here's what seems to fit, now I'm looking for that in the text, because what Jesus' point is, is Jesus' point, Jesus point is, is about the severity of what's going on, right? That's his point, that if this were not shortened, then this would be, the, it's talking about the severity of, of, of the aspect of what's going on. So, I don't know, I mean, and, I, and, and I'm not, again, I don't want to spend too much time because we're running out of time, but it is the minority of all the premillennial positions. It is by far the, 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 the smallest held. And so... Um, and, and so, yeah, uh, let's, let's keep going here. Okay, here's what I want to focus on is either a, the, the pre-trib and the post-trib positions. These are the, the most common, um, the common positions as far as, um, yes, uh, as far as uh, the tribulation. So the pre, or the, let's, start with the, let's start with the post-trib. Post-trib uh, rapture view, and I'm going to erase this words here. Post-trib rapture view is going to hold, and this is sometimes called the historic premillennialism or classic premillennialism, and the reason is, is because this is the view of premillennialism that's traced back to the early church fathers. So premillennialism, um, amillennialism, postmillennialism, all were, you could trace back into the the early centuries, uh, at at least second century, third century church. Um, And so this is the form of premillennialism that you can trace back to the early church. Uh, and that holds that the church is going to go through the tribulation, and at the end of the tribulation, the, there's going to be a rapture and then an immediate return with Christ. Um, and so the rapture of the church is going to uh, happen at the end for anyone, any of the believers that survive the tribulation, uh, and that there's, it's going to be an uh, immediate return with Christ there at the end. Unlike the, the post-trib, the pre-trib is that the church will be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, spend the tribulation with the Lord and return with Christ at the end. This is called uh, pre-tribulation review or the dispensational premillennialism. Uh, this was, it is, it is very rare to find this until about the 1800s. There, there's there's some, some evidence, but, but really you don't see this view documented until about the 1800s with the Plymouth Brethren and, and, Charles, and, and then f- furthermore with Charles Ryrie. 
Um, and, and so uh, that there's this, there's first this secret coming of Christ to rapture his church, and then there's this, this, this final coming of Christ, bringing with his, his kingdom, uh, the, the church with him to establish the millennium. So those are the two different views. Does that make sense, the differences? One is obviously pre-church is raptured, pre-the-tribulation. The other one is immediately up and down right at the end of the tribulation. So those are the two views. That makes sense of what the views are? You know, I've had uh, somebody describe in Bible study being opposed. Okay. And really explaining it. Well, let me, let me do that. really makes sense. Yeah, let me, let me look through the arguments here together. Let's look through the arguments. So let's look through the arguments. And I was going to separate these, but the arguments for a post-trib are the arguments used against a pre-trib. And the arguments for a pre-trib are the arguments used against the post-trip. So why don't, we, why don't we just cover all these at once? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover these together. Both. So first I want to look at the arguments used, which, which our brother Bob was here was talking about, that are used to support the post-trip, which are criticisms the post-trip view uses against the pre-trip. So I'm going to cover what those arguments are and the, what the pre-trip's responses would be to those arguments. Okay? Be, and, and I want, here's, let me tell you what I'm going to do ahead of time. That all these arguments, there is not a, a silver bullet in any of these arguments. There's not a single argument here that is just a lockjaw. Here it is. I set this down and there's no refutation. That all of these, there are arguments back in both ways. And the only way you're going to, people can best decide is accumulation of what seems to have the better position. Not the only position, not the, the silver bullet position, but the better, most cumulative of, of, of what seems to make the position. That, that's what I would see there. So, First of all, the post-tribs would say, would argue about the historical nature of their position. They would say, listen, would, would something invented, not invented, that's the wrong word, they would, something that was really articulated not until about 200 years ago, but was missing for about 2,000 years of Christian tradition and not understood by any of the church fathers, at least written that we have today, would that really be a, a reflection of what the early disciples understood? that the disciples' disciples, those who the disciples discipled, reflect, seem to reflect at least premillennially, a post-trib view. So that's, that's the argument that the post-tribs would give. Here's what the pre-trib response would be. The pre-trib response would be, minimal evidence does not mean no evidence. There seems, there, there are traces through, uh, there's some professors at Master's Seminary that have done this, that you look, that there is a expectation that seems to be an expectation for the rapture that they do trace back throughout Christian history. So it's minimal, but it does exist. Second of all, the ch- early church fathers were not inerrant. If you read the documents by Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and, 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 and uh, Tertullian, there's a lot of stuff we would say that their theology, they just get wrong. They just don't understand the Bible as well. They have some blind spots. So we don't want to take the early church fathers as inerrant. And so just because it's historical and the early church fathers have that, what we're relying on is scripture, not the early church fathers. That's what the premillennial uh, position would have for that. Second of all, the argument for a post-tribulation view is the New Testament use of the word tribulation. The, this is an argument. I wouldn't say this is the best argument for a post-trib, but it is an argument, so I'm going to present the argument. The argument is that the word tribulation is used 55 times in the New Testament, 47 times those are specifically attached to ideas about Christians suffering tribulation in the New Testament church. So that they would say that the argument that the church will escape tribulation is actually not clear in scripture. They would say that the church 
would, would escape the fullness of that tribulation in the sense of Israel in Egypt didn't get the fullness of, of, of God's plagues, but they did suffer because of the judgment God's bringing on Egypt. They were suffering part of the tribulation, but not the full weight. God protected them in the midst of the tribulation, they would say. Um, so that is the, that's the argument they would give, that God is protecting them in the midst of the tribulation, but that does not mean that they're removed from the tribulation, just like Israel and Egypt. Here's the rebuttal from the pre-tribulation uh, view on that. The pre-tribulation is saying, no, the argument we're giving, it's pre-tribs, is not that they would escape tribulation, but escape wrath, that there is a unique wrath of God unlike anything in the Old Testament, unlike anything in the New Testament that's revealed in Revelation that is a full, final fulfillment and culmination. There's no, you can't compare Israel and Egypt to that wrath because this is a whole new aspect of God pouring out his wrath of a final destruction of the world. So that's the pre-trib response to that. Third, here's the third uh, post-trib argument. Uh, I would say this is the strongest one. Uh, this is the strongest one that the, the post-tribs uh, would make. Especially this is done by G.E. Uh, Ladd, who was a professor at Fuller for many, many years. Uh, he would say, if you look back at 1 Thessalonians 4.17, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, <clears throat> he points out, uh, Ladd points out that 4.17, in that verse about the rapture, he, he would say, what is the purpose of the rapture? He would say, 417, that he are, we are caught up with him in the clouds with what purpose? To what? To meet. And what Lad points out is that word meet in the New Testament, apotenesis, is only used two other times in addition to 1 Thessalonians 4. It's only three occurrences in the New Testament. The two other times, one of them is in Matthew. I didn't write these down for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me, uh, uh, so one of them is Matthew 25, 6. Matthew 25, 6. Oh, man, I got to hurry up a little bit. And the other one is Acts 28, 15. Matthew 25, 6. Acts 28, 15. Matthew 25, 6. Listen to the context here. It's about the parable of the, the foolish virgins, that they go out to meet the bridegroom and they go right back to the wedding ceremony. Okay, Acts 28, 15 is about this group of believers in Rome that hear Paul's coming. The believers go out to meet Paul and come right back into Rome with him. And so what Lad says is that this word in Greek, meet, is used in the context of a welcoming party who goes out to meet someone and accompany them on the final leg of the journey. And, and Lad points out there's a historical context to this of, in, in, of the Romans. When a, a Roman victor would come to Rome, the city would come out to meet the victor, meet him, and then proceed into the city victoriously with him. So that is the context that Lad would argue. I would say that for post-tribbers, that is the best biblical exegetical argument there is. Is there a pre-trib rebuttal? There is. Here's the rebuttal. The pre-trib rebuttal, first of all, should say that's a really good exegetical argument. But the argument, it does not prove that, that, that it, that's the way it works, it get, but it does give a linguistic possibility. Because if you look in the broader use in Greek, so there's a, 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 concord, or a lexicon called BDAG that uses not just every New Testament document, but wider Greek usage. Sometimes it's used that way. And sometimes meat means meat. 
Funny how that works, right? Sometimes meet means you meet them and you come that back in. Sometimes meet means you go and you meet with them. You be with them. So words have multiple meanings. Which one did Paul mean here? It depends on how you're going to interpret it. So here's what this does. It says that it leaves the possibility that it can be a post-trib, but it does not prove that it's a post-trib. That's the, that's the rebuttal. You see that? That's important. It leaves the opening that there is an exegetical possibility for it, but it's not, it's not a silver bullet proving it. Does that make sense? Because meat, it just depends on, 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 on the mean that Paul's using there. All right, let's, let's, let's turn the tables here. Okay, uh, arguments for a pre-trib view, which is used against the post-trib view. First of all, the enduring of God's wrath. This is the most popular argument. I'd say it's the weakest argument. For, for a church, we're a church that it supports a pre-trib rapture. I want to encourage, this is not a good argument. There are better, better arguments I'm going to talk about in just a second. This is just not a good one. Here's why. The argument is that the New Testament say that Christians will not experience God's wrath. Uh, Romans 5.9, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. Um, and and so, so it's the same. If we're not going to experience God's wrath, then, then we should be gone. Here's why I'd say this is just not a good argument. There's better arguments for a pre-trib, which we're going to cover in just a second. First of all, the context of those is not wrath as far as earthly wrath. It's talking about judgment. Read Romans, read 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5. It's talking about final judgment there. And here's the, the bigger argument against this. Will any believers be on earth when God is pouring out his wrath? Yes. So how come we don't get to experience God's wrath? Because I'm, what, better believers? But those who get saved or Jewish believers, they will experience God's wrath. Does that see, you see how the argument breaks down? It just isn't a good argument. If you read the Left Behind books, it kind of gives the pre-trib view. There are believers who experience that, right? So that's just not a good argument because there are believers that are going to be on earth. And they will be there during, unless you say every time someone gets saved, God raptures them in the New Testament, in, in, in Revelation, which then you're not talking about, I mean, pre-trib, it's like a, a throughout trip, right? So it's just, that's not a good argument. There are better arguments. Here are the next three are the better arguments for a pre-trib rapture. Um, second, the imminence of Christ's return. Here's, the, here's what the pre-trib position would say. How can you be expectant if you know you have the tribulation first? There's this eager expectation that, that, ha, that it's not really a sudden, it's not a sudden return if, it, if, you, if there's kind of the seven-year lead up, right? Well, how would the, the post-trib re, 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 uh, re, rebuke that? How would they, they respond to that? They would say, first of all, the weaker argument is, well, people just don't understand timing. They missed it the first time Christ came. They're going to miss it the second time. That's true. As I said, the better rebuttal from post-trib would be that, that Every, all views view this as a complex of events. All views are viewing what Jesus is saying as a complex of events. And so this idea of a expectation of, not necessarily the expectation of the rapture, but the return of Christ, which is included, the rapture, which includes the millennium, which includes the tribulation as a complex of eschatology, right? So that is the response. And then the pre-trib response to that would be true, but doesn't it fit better for ex- with human logic? This is where, again, we're going beyond scripture. My human logic would say it fits better to be expectant if it's sudden, something sudden, right? So, so we're going beyond scripture, we're going to human logic, that that would seem to make a better case. Uh, second of all, the relationship between the church and Israel. 
again, a much better argument than, than, than this idea, the, the wrath idea. The pre-trib has said there's an important distinction between the church and Israel. That God has not finished his plan with ethnic Israel. When will God finish these promises? The Old Testament promises and the New Testament promises like Romans 9 through 11. And it's, it's, it's going to be during this time. In fact, uh, and, and as Pastor Bob has pointed out many times, that there seems to be this silence between Revelation 4 and then Revelation 19 and, and the mention of the bride there in, 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 in Revelation 19. Well, what would the post-tribs say about that? Here's how the post-tribs would respond to that point. The, the weaker point is that there are some post-tribs that say, yeah, no, 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 the, the church in Israel, there is no such thing as ethnic Israel. It's all part of the church. You, you're seeing that less and less today because of the influence of, of progressive dispensationalism on covenant theology. You're seeing that even, even Amil guys is talking about a future for ethnic Israel. So that's, that's not as big of a point, but the post-trip response to this more would be the idea of, they'd respond more to that silence idea of it's a change. If you look in Revelation, Revelation 1 through 4 and Revelation 5 through 19 are clearly different genres. Revelation 1 through 4 are clearly letters Revelation 5 through 19 is clearly an apocalyptic vision. So you would expect a different change in language there um, and not necessarily an absence of the church. They would say similar to Acts, Peter disappears halfway through Acts. There's a, there's a change, a change in focus. Did Peter get raptured in Acts? Why not? He disappeared. From Acts like halfway through Acts to the end of Acts, Peter's gone. So can't we say Peter's raptured? No, right? Silence doesn't mean rapture unless you want to see rapture. So that's, that's the, uh, the post-trib response to that. Then the, the pre-trib response would be that still doesn't deal with this aspect of the fulfillment of Israel, right? That, that's the pre-trib response. The pre-trib would say that still that it's true. You can say it's true about the silence, but what are you doing about, about Israel? Um, then the last point that is a pre-trib point, this Bruce Ware makes this point. He is a pre-trib guy and he makes the point of if the rapture are right at the end, then the church misses the marriage supper of the lamb, right? You have the marriage supper of the lamb in Revelation 19, which would assume that there's some interval of time where the church is in heaven before the return of Christ. So that's Bruce Ware's position. That's a, that's a really good argument, that, that if the marriage supper of the Lamb is there and the church is, has to be there, the, the church has to be there for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So if it's just go out and come right back, who's there for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Um, so what's the post-trib response to that? The post-trib response is the marriage supper of the Lamb is a difficult subject. In fact, you're saying Israel then is going to miss the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the marriage supper of the Lamb is not a promise to the church. We're the bride of Christ. We are currently the bride of Christ. But if you talk about marriage of Yahweh's promise to marry his bride in the future, who's that a promise to? Read Hosea. Read Hosea. Read the prophets. This is, this is a promise that is to Israel of God renewing his marriage covenant with his bride. So both the pre-trib and the post-trib have a problem with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so in the sense of, it seems like someone always is going to be missing. How do you, and, and, and it's a difficult one. I actually one day would like to do a paper on that and do it for, and submit to ETS because I think it's a difficult subject of what do you do? Because no matter every, every end time position, 
someone's missing out on the marriage supper of the lamb unless there is no marriage supper of the lamb. And the Amels would say, see, there's no marriage supper of the lamb. We're living in the marriage supper of the lamb. And I'd say, this doesn't seem like the marriage supper of the lamb. <laughs> so, so it's a difficult passage. All right. Ha, I did it. Okay. I'm sorry there weren't a lot of time for questions. But, but here's what I wanted to do this so you guys get the full picture all together instead of trying to, to, to piecemeal it. And also because, I, 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 so you can see this. This is a hard issue. We are going beyond scripture. If you're going to say, I am not going to take my theology and read my theology into passages, which is what we do. We say, I'm a pre-trib, pre-mill guy, or I'm a post-trib, pre-mill guy. And so I'm going to read these passages. Oh, look how it seems to support my position. That's the wrong way to go. We can't help it. But, but if you were to say just for what scripture just purely says, you have the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, you have no rapture in Revelation, and we have to go beyond scripture we're trying to put this together. And are there hints? Yes. But those hints are how our human logic are putting things together. And so we want to be careful as I said before, the best argument is not from a silver bullet. There is no silver bullet. I'm going to use this argument. I'm going to show them it's, it's perfect. There are good rebuttals both way. We are a church, a pre-trib, pre-mill church, not because of a silver bullet of this is the argument and there's no, no rebuttal to this, but the accumulation has convinced our church that the accumulation of that sense of imminence of the future of Israel because of our understanding of ethnic Israel, about the, um, some, certain aspects of the marriage supper of the land, the accumulation of those lends to more of where our church would hold that pre-trib, pre-mill position. But it's not a silver bullet. It's not a, a because it is, it is super clear and it's just as clear as things like the deity of Christ. It's definitely not. Or as much as the return of Christ. That it is one where the, the, our church would say that the accumulation lends evidence that leans that way. But it's tough because we are going beyond what scripture has made clear. Not beyond what, what scripture says, but what scripture has made clear. And so we just want to be really humble with that and, and as we look at that issue. So I, I, I'm sorry that I did not take more time. If you want some more, uh, Wayne Grudem. He, Wayne Grudem is a pre-mill post-trib guy. Um, also, you look at John MacArthur's New Systematic Theology. He's a pre-mill, pre-mill, pre-mill pre-trib guy. So those are some arguments that are, have, that are in there as good resources. Um, and... Um, we should pray. I'll stick around for a couple minutes um, if you have questions, and but then we can get into service. But if you want to have some questions, I can stick around for a couple minutes. So let me pray. Father, we just thank you. And, and Lord, these things are hard to understand. We understand where Peter would say that some things Paul said are hard to understand and some things in your scripture are just not clear. And yet we want to be humble, Lord, and recognize you didn't make things with the same clarity for a reason so that we would have to humble ourselves before you so we'd have to practice humility and charity with our brothers and sisters in Christ and so that we'd be utterly dependent on you as we work through these things and remember that we are not omniscient. We are not you, God. We do not know the end from the beginning, much less declare the end from the beginning. And so we thank you for what you have revealed. We thank you for how that gives us hope and encouragement and motivation for holiness and perseverance. And we pray, Lord, as we think through the rest of these ideas, Lord, that you help us to do so as best as we can with the gifts of logic you've given us and the scripture you've given us, but to help us to do that with humility and with charity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.